Kajala Medical presents COVID-19 The Answers, the show that delivers the scientific evidence-based knowledge that can safely return us all to our pre-COVID lives. My name is Dr. Fumi Okanola, and I'll be hosting the show. Every week, you can listen to me interview a highly respected professional about the science that can reduce your risk of becoming infected with this coronavirus. Hello. This week's episode about long COVID is one of the most significant because it truly emphasizes why we need to take precautions to avoid becoming infected with SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, and leads the way to the protective technologies that we illustrate in the coming weeks. We have two respected guests. We begin with Dr. Jason Maley, who explains what long COVID is and the processes that may be involved. Dr. Maley discusses his and his team's clinical experiences of providing care to long COVID sufferers. We also touch on the US National Research Recover Project that he is involved with. Professor Amitava Banerjee is our second guest. He talks about the UK Stimulate ICP Long COVID Research Project. We discuss the importance of illness prevention and his study findings on the organ damage linked with long COVID, as well as the research he is conducting looking into potential treatments. The show notes will have links to articles and research papers mentioned in the interview. Hello and welcome to episode three of COVID-19 The Answers. Today I would like to introduce you to Dr. Jason Maley. Dr. Maley is an epidemiologist and specialist physician in pulmonary care and critical medicine. He is director of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center's Critical Illness and COVID-19 Survivorship Program in Boston in the United States. He is an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School and co-chair of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Post-Acute Sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 Collaborative. He has come to talk to us today about long COVID. Welcome. Jason, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself? Your resume is quite diverse. How did you come to be an epidemiologist and also a physician for COVID-19 survivors? Sure, thank you for having me. So I uh, came to be focused on this really initially through my work at, in the intensive care unit following patients and families after they survived critical illness before the pandemic and had an interest in both understanding the challenges of recovering from especially a respiratory illness like a pneumonia and how to help people recover best. And with the pandemic and the number of people we were seeing in the ICU and then recognizing this entity long COVID, the sequelae that people were having, even after mild COVID, we knew that there was an important need to help these patients recover and a need to understand it better and to get to the bottom of why people were experiencing this. So it was kind of a natural extension of my pre-pandemic outcomes work, shifting into now understanding recovery from COVID-19. That's fantastic. And I must say, just thank you for all that you do. Um, we across the world truly appreciate physicians such as yourself that have approached this whole sort of pandemic disaster with such bravery and, and focus. We really appreciate that. Thank you. I'm going to now get down to the questions and we're going to really talk about long COVID. 
So long COVID is estimated to affect 15 to 30% of all non-hospitalized people that get COVID-19 and around 80% of people hospitalized with COVID-19. To give the audience an idea on numbers, with over 3 million Canadians infected with COVID-19 to date, we would expect around half to 1 million people to develop long COVID. In the USA, nearly 78 million people have tested positive for COVID-19. This would equate to around 12 to 23 million people developing long COVID. Staggering figures. So after a viral illness, we can expect to be a little run down for a few weeks as our immune systems recover. Bearing this in mind, what is long COVID and how does it differ from this presentation? Great. So after, you're right, after having a typical virus, having a cold or even having the flu, most people will feel kind of run down for days to weeks, but then they'll recover and they'll feel essentially like they get back to their normal routine. Their energy is normal, their sleep normalizes, they're able to work, their thinking hasn't changed, and certainly they're not having new unexplained symptoms like pains or changes in their taste and smell that has not returned, those types of things. So where long COVID differs is as people are recovering from the initial illness, the acute illness, having COVID-19, in the weeks to months after that, usually people recognize around four to 12 weeks, they haven't recovered the way they would expect, or there are new things that they're noticing, such as the shortness of breath that they had when they first had COVID hasn't gone away. And they were previously athletic and active, and now they feel short of breath walking around their house, or their heart races when they walk around, or they haven't been able to return to work because their thinking and their memory and their ability to multitask and organize and focus is completely off and they really can't function. So those, along with many other things head to toe, are persisting in a way that you wouldn't expect for someone who had recovered from a virus and whose body had returned to normal. So there's clearly a change that hasn't returned to normal and, and is causing this injury. Thank you. Has there been a viral disease causing this proportion of chronic illness in a population in recorded medical history? So we, it's, it's tough to say exact numbers, but one first reference point is prior to this pandemic, this type of syndrome, post-acute infection, post-acute viral syndromes causing impairments like long COVID have been described for centuries actually. They were given a variety of different names because the farther back in time you go, the, the less understanding they had of medicine. And similar, unfortunately, to what we're seeing with long COVID at that time, people were also kind of brushed aside as this isn't real or you're just, you need to get over this type of mentality. But people having changes in cognition, persistent fatigue, unexplained pains, and other symptoms like we're seeing with long COVID has been described with other viral pandemics and after other infections. So it's hard to know if we're simply recognizing it and it's getting this attention because of the scale of the pandemic mm. and the fact that so many people are being affected. 
and we're in the age of modern medicine and communication and connectivity across the world so that we can actually see that scale in a way that wouldn't have been possible during a pandemic at the beginning of the 20th century or during pandemics at other times. Um, so I don't know the exact comparison to others. I think it's been seen before, but certainly the scale is something that we've never at least had recorded in medical history. Mm. Oh, excellent point. Long COVID is known to present with a myriad of symptoms. Over 200 symptoms in a paper I read last year, ranging from fatigue to heart arrhythmias. In your clinical experience as a physician, closely working with this patient group, what are the most serious and concerning symptoms? The most common symptoms we see and what people most often come to us concerned about are debilitating fatigue. In many people, that's associated with something called post-exertional malaise or post-exertional symptom exacerbation, which means you feel an intense exhaustion. Some patients describe as if every part of their body is completely drained of energy after sometimes minimal activity. So someone will wake up in the morning, go to make breakfast. And after doing that, they have to lie down and they feel almost incapacitated. Um, there are others who feel fatigue that they're able to do their normal activities, but the next day after having a busy day, they feel a physical illness, which is that post-exertional malaise. Many people actually think they got COVID again, or they think they've been infected. So fatigue is a very common one. The cognitive changes, changes in thinking, memory, focus, and attention that impact people's ability to, to work, sometimes to do common things around the house, like remember that they're, they're cooking, they walk away and forget that they're cooking. That's a common symptom. The racing heart and feeling those types of symptoms, which we classify as dysautonomia, an issue with the autonomic nervous system likely is a common area. And then some other ones include pains like burning, sharp pains, numbness, tingling, nerve type pains, ish changes in digestion, um, shortness of breath, I should say. Shortness of breath is a very common one. And we see people also who their primary issue has been their taste and smell has never returned. They otherwise feel recovered, but everything tastes rotten to them or tastes like metal and they're not able to enjoy foods. So I'd say that's probably the handful of most common things people come with. Although, like you said, there are many things people have experienced head to toe, which I think each one could be equally distressing or, or equally concerning. So it's not that one is more important than the other, but those are the most common ones. Is there a difference in the terms post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 and long COVID? To give you an idea of what I mean, a person who's been hospitalized with severe COVID and develops kidney failure as a result, would that person on returning home who might remain in kidney failure be labeled as suffering from long COVID? Or do those that suffer from long COVID have their own unique signs and symptoms? That's a great question. I think the terms came from different sources. So long COVID 
arose within the patient community as a, a term that emphasized the fact that it wasn't necessarily that this was post-COVID, that they were experiencing issues from COVID that could represent a continuation of that disease um, and was a slight change in labeling from calling something a post-COVID condition, which was one of the terms used in the scientific community. Post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 was, I think, originated from the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. and is essentially getting at, um, is a scientific label for an illness after the acute phase of the illness, which I think from a historical perspective is appropriate because there's also other post-acute infectious syndromes that fit with what we're seeing. So it's kind of easy to refer to that, but I frequently just use long COVID because it's simpler. People are very familiar with it. In terms of your question about people who have been very sick in the hospital and have persistent health impairments afterwards, there is a distinction because whether it's from COVID, from the flu, from a bacteria causing pneumonia or other infection, we've known for a very long time, people who become very ill, especially from infections in the hospital, um, suffer long-term consequences in their health. And it could be because their kidneys failed because they were bed bound for weeks and they have to recover from that. Or it could be changes in cognition, thinking and memory, just like we see with long COVID. But it's probably a, a slightly different process within the body to become this sick after a mild virus versus to have difficulty recovering because you were severely sick in the ICU or in the hospital. Being severely sick is probably, regardless of the cause, the reason why you have difficulty recovering. Whereas long COVID for the most part is being used to refer to what could be the underlying biological reason that after getting a virus, even a mild infection, you begin to have a host of new health issues throughout your body. Um, and I think that's a different process. Mm. Which brings me to my next question. Um, with so many symptoms associated with long COVID, do you believe that as research progresses, we will find that COVID-19 has led to a cluster of disease processes rather than just one termed long COVID? I think from what I see um, with different patterns in patients, the different types of symptoms and the, the different, what we might use the term phenotype, which is kind of a description of certain patterns of symptoms we may see 10% of our patients have this pattern, 20% have a different pattern. That's what we're observing. That's what I see as I see now, having seen many hundreds of people with this. There are some with very distinct clusters and respond to specific medications well. Others who have no response to those medications and have a different cluster. So I think at the very basic level, it may relate what we're learning at least to a change in the immune system. The immune system is becomes active to fight the infection, but doesn't shut off as it should. But within each person, there may be a different way that that manifests. There may be specific immune cells that are more active in one person than another that could lead to impairments in one area in response to one set of medications versus another. So I think it's, it seems to be diverse enough that we'll learn 
from the initial injury of COVID, the body responds in slightly different pathways. And that could lead to these different clusters of symptoms and different responses to treatments, which is, unfortunately, it's, it's common for almost all diseases. And what makes medicine challenging is that even one drug for one disease can cure one person of it and not help another. Mm-hmm. Yes, very interesting, but distressing for those suffering. Um, what is remarkable to me is that people who have never had any COVID symptoms, i.e. those who have tested positive but are asymptomatic, can also go on to develop long COVID. Do you have a theory as to why? Um, that's a great question. I don't know the exact answer to why that's the case. And just by the nature of um, people recognizing long COVID as being associated with having had COVID with at least some symptoms, almost everyone we see had a period of time where they felt ill and then the long COVID followed that. Um, It's less common that people come to us having had a positive COVID test, no symptoms, and then later on develop symptoms. So I don't know how common long COVID is after asymptomatic infection, but for the same reasons that it's causing this in mild infection, it could simply be that um, the virus is stimulating a change in the immune system, not to the degree that causes severe illness, but persists at a low level, say, and causes other health impairments because it doesn't shut off appropriately. So I think it's possible that it could be after asymptomatic infection, though most of the patients we see did have, can point to some symptoms, even if it's a very mild illness when they were initially sick. Hmm. Has there been any definitive research that indicates for how much time an individual would be expected to suffer with long COVID? This goes back to that the different clusters of patients or buckets people seem to fall into. There are, we see certainly very distinct groups in terms of people who have similar long COVID issues. They feel short of breath or they have brain fog. Yet when we follow them by nine months, they feel back to normal versus people who have no change over time or a group of people, I would say it's not uncommon for people who have had very long symptoms that they have ups and downs. They have a period where they thought they were completely over this and then something happened. They may have gotten COVID again, or they may have had a stressful time in their life or had some other illness and their symptoms flare back. So there's that group that has kind of a roller coaster of ups and downs. So it, it kind of depends on what group someone falls into in terms of guessing when they might feel better or at least very close to normal. And as we follow people over the first six months or so, it gives us a fairly good understanding of which group they might fall into because people know themselves well and they can say, compared to three months ago, I feel so much better. I'm not back to normal, but I'm dramatically better. That's much more reassuring than seeing someone who every month has an up and down and we can't quite get a grasp on what's causing these continued flares of their symptoms. Mm. 
Is it is there any evidence-based research to show long COVID patients that have had significant improvement in their symptoms can completely recover, or will long COVID stay with them for life? There, lots of the research has focused on different symptoms over time. It's been fairly limited in that it has done surveys or other ways of engaging patients to describe what they're experiencing. There haven't been as many studies that have very rigorously followed people systematically, say every month or every few months. That's actually something that we're involved in right now is this large national study throughout the US that intends to follow people over years. But um, what I've seen so far for specific symptoms are things like people who even by four to six months still have changes in smell and taste. Most of them have recovered when they're followed up at one year. Um, For people who have very fast heart rate in the early months after COVID, which is a common thing we see, the heart is going faster than expected with activity. Most by six to nine months seem to have resolved that symptom. For other symptoms like fatigue and brain fog, cognitive changes, those appear to be the most persistent among people who have persistent symptoms. Fatigue and brain fog or cognitive changes tend to be two of the ones that are experienced by most people in that group. So it really seems to vary by by the individual symptom. And we've seen at least that it definitely seems to vary by when people are able to get care, whether it's medications to treat their symptoms or rehabilitation to help their shortness of breath or other forms of treatment. There certainly seems to be a benefit that we're finding in our patients and, and patients when they enter into our clinic. I feel are continuing on the path of recovery, even if they're not fully back to normal. It's uncommon for people to be worsening or not feeling better over time. Most people do every few months say that they're continuing to recover and they're continuing to feel better. Oh, that's that's really good to hear, actually. Um, so I may be a bit presumptive with this question, but from your own encounters as a physician caring for this patient group, have you experienced a patient fully recovering from long COVID that can be declared cured of long COVID? Yeah, I think... Um... So I have certainly have had patients who feel fully recovered. Um, they generally fall into that group who by, I would say, six to 12 months are experiencing that recovery. Uh, patients who are seeing us who are 18 months out, I guess the nature of them seeing us is because they still have symptoms. Yeah. So there's a bias to who we're seeing. But we certainly have seen people who feel fully recovered. I guess the term cured may depend on us understanding what the actual cause of long COVID is and being able to test that, which is something that we we don't currently know and can't do. So I'm hopeful that we'll learn through these studies what to follow and what to test for that will help us know the body is no longer having the problem that caused long COVID. We do have a concern sometimes when people feel much better that there's could be a risk of symptoms flaring in the future. And that could happen if they got a new infection. I've had people with who have felt cured and then had a second infection with COVID and their symptoms returned to some degree. So that makes me think 
if it is something such as the immune system that has not properly regulated itself, they could be at risk for that with future infections. Um, so that's kind of where I stand on cured, but people recovering from symptoms, we certainly have seen, and, and we've seen people who without new infections or new triggers have felt completely back to normal. That's encouraging. Do you have any idea of what proportion that is of the people you see? Um, it's going to be slightly biased because people with the worst symptoms come to us. And there's also, unfortunately, a long wait for all COVID clinics because of just the sheer volume of people experiencing this. So we do see the sickest of the sick people. Um, I would say probably a third of the people we see fall into that category of they come with bad symptoms, yet we can tell as we follow them with time and we look back in time, they're clearly improving and they get back to a place where they feel, say, 95, 97% back to themselves. That's probably a third of the people we see. Um, and the other two thirds were either seeing slower progress or they may feel better and then have a future flare and have more of that up and down coming and going aspect to their long COVID. Mm. Numerous important studies have been launched to look at how COVID-19 leads to long COVID. This has resulted in a range of hypotheses being proposed as a cause of long COVID. And to give just a few examples, um, a change in gut microbiome, its classification as an autoimmune disease. One really interesting one to me recently was latent viruses in the body, such as the Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono or glandular fever, being re-triggered by SARS-CoV-2 and so on. So what in, is, in your opinion, the most likely cause or causes of this syndrome? In my opinion, the most likely theory to bear out as being true is a change in the immune system after having COVID-19 that's leading to persistent low-level inflammation or injury in different parts of the body. What's triggering that? We don't know. There are even below that level of theory, there are theories that it could be persistence of at part, parts of the virus that the body is still feeling, although there's not active infection going on that viral remnants are still triggering the immune system or that the, in autoimmunity, meaning that the body's immune system is in a sense attacking itself has been triggered. There have been some clues to those to that type of process, but nothing definitive. But I think it all centers around uh, an inappropriate response of the immune system being persistently abnormal for much longer than you would expect after a virus. I think other things like um, finding Epstein-Barr virus, which is a very common virus that people may have latent in their bodies, it doesn't point to that being the cause necessarily because it's quite common that that's found in different infections and in different inflammatory states. So I think it's probably just a clue to the fact that the immune system is not properly regulating itself, more so than that Epstein-Barr virus itself being the explanation for long COVID. It's probably just a sign of the issue within the body. Right, okay. 
So when you term viral remnants, you actually mean viral remnants of SARS-CoV-2 rather than viral remnants of something else that we may well have caught. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the theories is that 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 could be a trigger. Um, And it's very tough to to answer that theory because the only way to really look for virus in detail is if someone has unfortunately died and we can do an autopsy. And those are usually people who get very sick in the hospital, uh, not people who are young and otherwise healthy and then got COVID and are living with long COVID. But but um, it's hard to understand within their body what could be going on without getting the right tests. Long COVID is known to disproportionately affect women more than men. Do you have any idea why this could be? So I think telling the demographics has been tough because in some cases, the surveys have engaged social media groups or other groups who may skew towards a different demographic, depending on who is most engaged in that group and who is is searching for answers as part of that group. So I don't, we certainly see a spectrum, men and women and, and all races and ethnicities affected by this. And I think that makes sense to me. Um, There are parts of long COVID, like having a very fast heart rate with activity that has been seen after other viruses or as part of a syndrome called POTS, Mm. Austral orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. That has tended to be younger women more often than men and more often than older people. And I don't think it's very well understood why that's the case. Um, The MECFS is another component, a syndrome that we see reflected in long COVID, which stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome. That has also been described for a long time after other infections. And also sometimes for unknown reasons, people develop this but they frequently are able to point to some initial illness and initial infection. Um, In studies of that disease that have gone on prior to the pandemic, there have been clues that there may be genes, genetics that make one person more susceptible after an infection to developing it compared to others. So I think probably the reason that so many people are having the same virus infect them and some recover and some develop long COVID would have to do with differences in the genetics and how the bodies are responding, um, which could then translate into differences among demographics. So that's interesting. Um, So you actually think there's likely a genetic rather than a sex or gender difference that could be uh, leading to an exacerbation of symptoms? I think probably for, for the same infection to lead to such varied responses in the body, um, the genetics or something we call epigenetics, things that also not just your genes, but modify the activity of genes. There could be so many reasons why one person is prone to having this completely different response to the virus than another. And we see that in acute COVID too. Some people get very sick and die from COVID and someone else who seems to be the same age, the same gender, otherwise seems exactly the same, has a mild illness. So there are a lot of factors 
related to how the immune system responds to infection that differ between people. And there are things such as genetics and other factors that modify the activity of genes that could be why there's such a different response. I guess it would be really interesting to do some twin studies you know, to, to back up that argument. Do you know of anybody who's doing that? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know off the top of my head about twin studies, but that is an area where um, people can use identical twins and understand um, and also can use people adopted at birth who are twins to understand the relationship between environment versus genetics on illness. But I, I don't know of that in long COVID. Mm, thank you. Long COVID seems to affect one or many different parts of the body, involving potentially many medical specialists becoming involved in the sufferer's treatment and recovery. Can you please tell us about your approach to providing care for these patients? Because it affects so many parts of the body and we recognized even early on from patients surviving the ICU that there were many different areas affected that no one doctor or one therapist or clinician or nurse could help address alone. Our approach was to put together a team of people who really act as a group centered around the patient's needs. And we modify who's involved with each patient depending on the individual patient's needs. So some people may primarily have issues with their thinking and memory, and they need to focus on seeing our cognitive neurologist and our occupational therapist who specializes in brain rehab and a, a neuropsychiatrist who also specializes in brain rehabilitation. All of those people are kind of part of the core team and then you can easily streamline patients getting into each one of them much more than you could if you were just refer you're a primary care doctor in a health system and you're just trying to refer patients to different areas and then the second benefit of creating that team is that you begin by virtue of specializing in this seeing a very high volume of patients and you gain a level of experience quickly that other people just simply don't have because they're not focused solely on this. And so your, our practice and how we treat patients begins to be informed on a week to week basis by what we're learning from seeing so many patients. And it's a feedback where we can develop processes of care and see what's working and what's not in a way that wouldn't be possible if we didn't have a high volume specialized team. Mm, that's fantastic. So I guess it's what's called a multidisciplinary team with many uh, different, uh, I guess, uh, medical specialists and, and other medical professionals being involved. Yes. Yeah, that's right. We have very important outside of physicians, social workers, physical and occupational therapists, a nurse who coordinates all of this. Um, the staff in our clinics who help to coordinate the care as well, and then researchers and people who are doing things like breathing therapy with patients who have backgrounds in yogic breathing, uh, people who are helping with the research to understand what's going on. So many areas of the team and, and many different disciplines involved. That's fantastic. This virus is a new discovery in medicine and science. 
Your experience with post-intensive care syndrome must have been invaluable to the work you are doing today on long COVID. Please explain post-intensive care syndrome to our audience and could you relate how this clinical and research experience fed into your clinical care and research of long COVID sufferers? Yes, thank you. So over 20 plus years, research had been showing that people surviving being in intensive care unit on breathing machines, on ventilators, or having severe infections in the intensive care unit were leaving and suffering from changes to their thinking. They were testing on the level of people with dementia at times in terms of their thinking. They were physically debilitated because they were bed bound and for so long and they were sick and their muscles had wasted and they may have other injuries. And they were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression. They may have had continued shortness of breath because their pneumonia had scarred their lungs. So all of these issues became termed post-intensive care syndrome, which refers to these persistent health impairments that occur after being in the ICU and persist after leaving the hospital. And they generally fall into those buckets of physical impairments, mental health impairments, and cognitive impairments. Although there are now many other things layered on top of that. Um, that issue, post-intensive care syndrome, was at least in the US, not very well addressed by health systems. There were only a few clinics that existed prior to the pandemic that were focused on ICU recovery. And it was, so it was very, very limited getting actual specialized access. The pandemic was a catalyst for many of these clinics opening up, including ours, because suddenly health systems saw the issue and it was being recognized by the public and they were motivated to, to invest and to support these. Whereas prior to this, a lot of it fell into the research domain and didn't make it over into the space of actually helping patients clinically. Mm. Well, that's something positive to come out of all of this, really. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Um, you treat both hospitalized and non-hospitalized long COVID sufferers. The presentation of symptoms for long COVID and post-intensive care syndrome are similar. How do you distinguish between the symptoms caused by long COVID from the symptoms caused by post-intensive care syndrome? Yeah, for post-intensive care syndrome, because there's a fair amount of experience with it prior to COVID, um, we tend to really, if people are coming out of the ICU, focus on those issues, which do have some overlap with long COVID. So there are people who have changes in cognition there are people who are physically debilitated and need very intense physical therapy. Um, and then others with mental health issues or shortness of breath. So we tend after the ICU to really focus on the big steps of recovery, going from someone who has been in the hospital bed bound on life support to it walking around basic functioning at home, those types of things. And then over the coming months, we're able to see is someone kind of continuing to progress and recover in the expected way, or are there other unique aspects to what they're experiencing that we see with long COVID, like the taste and smell haven't returned. That's something that we wouldn't 
routinely expect with post-intensive care syndrome and is more unique to this virus, that they're having unexplained pains throughout their body. That's something, again, we see commonly with the virus. Um, and there are some other examples of things that wouldn't you wouldn't simply expect related to being critically ill and maybe more unique to long COVID itself. But the approach is generally get the big picture of recover, recovery settled out, which is largely post-intensive care syndrome issues addressed. And then over time, understand as they're recovering, are there new issues emerging or are some of the issues persisting that we think we wouldn't expect to persist in this way if it was just critical illness alone and not long COVID. So in actual fact, you're in a very good position because you see those two different groups to sort of tease out. Um, so um, the two different types of symptoms, it's actually a very good position that you're in from what I can ascertain. Am I correct? Yes, I think so. Um, and it's a bit up to the individual patient how I think long COVID has gotten so much recognition. Um, people may feel more support if they're labeled or they self-associate as having long COVID and there are other people experiencing these things. Post-intensive care syndrome, though it was known in the medical wor world, was not really known to the public and even not known to most doctors. So I think there is a, also benefit in just the community, community of support that you get from being someone who has long COVID, whether it's, we think it falls more into a post-intensive care syndrome bucket or it's more of a long COVID bucket. Mm. Could you please share with us the specific research that you're doing with respect to long COVID? So our research um, spans a few areas with long COVID. Early on, as we began to see people with shortness of breath, many of whom were having normal testing performed and we couldn't find an issue with the lung, lungs themselves that fully explained this, we were wondering how we could help people rehabilitate from that, knowing that they were safe to do so because their lung function was, was preserved. So we've been doing a randomized study of specific types of breathing exercises to improve the breathing comfort for patients, to improve their strength of breathing, and to improve their ability to breathe comfortably while active. Um, more recently, this extensive study across the, the US through the National Institutes of Health is called Recover. And it's going to be enrolling people who either have long COVID or are at the time of having their COVID infection are acutely sick, or people who have not had COVID as far as they know and are healthy. And so we can use them for comparison. And we're doing detailed testing, blood testing, questionnaires, as well as potentially depending on symptoms, tests head to toe like brain MRI, lung function tests, um, other things to get at what exactly is causing these symptoms and what could explain long COVID and how do people recover in these different groups? So how, as we test them over time, are their symptoms changing? Recent studies in Israel and the US have indicated that vaccination possibly prevents long COVID or reduces the severity of long COVID symptoms. In your opinion, when we are vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2, 
what is happening in the body to cause this? So when we're vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2 or pretty much any vaccination, the idea is to produce a memory within our immune system for that infection so that the infection for in the case of this virus, which may be in your nose along the lining of your nose as, it, as you breathe it in, can only get that far. And when it enters the body, it's cleared quickly because your body has a memory of this infection and it removes it. It has antibodies, which are things that attach and remove infection and activate a process that ultimately removes the infection from your body. So the biggest difference in someone vaccinated versus unvaccinated from that perspective is really the body entering and the virus entering and spreading throughout the body in a way that can be harmful. If you're vaccinated, you can still be exposed to the virus. You can still breathe it in. It can still get on the lining of your nose. And that's why you can still test positive potentially at the time that you're exposed from a swab, but it won't successfully get in and spread throughout your body and it won't make you sick. So I think the biggest difference is early rapid clearance of the virus within the body, preventing it from spreading throughout the bloodstream to tissues and affecting tissues potentially with inflammation. And that seems to fit with the idea that abnormal immune system activation is explaining long COVID and persistent inflammation throughout the body could be explaining long COVID. If you prevent that from happening in the first place by clearing the virus immediately through the memory that your body has from vaccination, then you could prevent long COVID. And that's what we're seeing in these studies that are early and there's, they're preliminary. Some are not yet fully reviewed by the journals that they've, they're submitting to. Um, but they seem to be good quality. And they suggest one of the recent studies I've seen from Israel that full vaccination is more protective than single dose and is much more protective than unvaccinated. So it, it fits with this theory and it kind of um, supports this idea that clearing the virus quickly could prevent long COVID. That's an excellent explanation. I can sort of qualify that in my mind. Um, so when you say full vaccination, do you mean two shots, three shots? So this test, this study was done with two shots, I believe of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, at this point, I would consider someone a full protected vaccination with three shots. And that's been shown very clearly with data in with the Omicron variant. Um, that two shots are not fully protective in the way that three shots are. And certainly for someone who is at higher risk because of their age or other illnesses or their immune system is compromised, then they, they definitely need to have full vaccination, including booster shots to be protected. Yeah, thank you for that excellent answer. Despite the worldwide record-breaking number of COVID infections caused by the recent Omicron wave, we have been told by politicians and some in public health that we need to live with COVID-19. Countries all over the world are rushing to roll back public health infection control measures, such as requirements to wear masks or to be vaccinated to enter public spaces. In some countries and regions, access to testing has been reduced contact tracing curtailed, and cessation of the need to quarantine if you test positive. 
It appears with this approach that some are advocating a policy of letting the virus rip through our populations unobstructed. What is your opinion of this approach and what impact do you see this having on long COVID? So I think we expect long COVID can continue to happen, unfortunately, from this virus as it spreads. And so the decisions from a public health perspective and for each individual person of how they want to protect themselves could impact that. You could be at higher risk if you're not vaccinated and you're in public places and you don't wear a mask. You would be at high risk of getting the virus and then you could get long COVID. If you're fully vaccinated and you take measures to avoid crowded spaces indoors or you wear a mask indoors, then you're at lower risk. Um, the actual public policies that are decided are are tough because everything in medicine is a benefit of risk, is a balance of risks and benefits. And people often outside of medicine have a tough time conceptualizing that. And policies are kind of a blanket thing. So everyone is affected by them, yet within even a state or a town, there are going to be people with polar opposite views on this risk benefit. Some will be more comfortable being more careful, and some will want to be less careful in terms of exposure to the virus. So I think the, the main answer to the changes is that um, we will unfortunately continue to see mild infections. That's going to be the reality of the state of the virus and the rate of vaccination in different regions will affect that. We're hopeful in the regions like I live in where there's a very high vaccination rate that that will be protective against long COVID in the same way it's protective against COVID infection and severe illness from acute COVID. So that will benefit those areas in areas where the virus is spreading and there's a low vaccination rate, they're gonna have, I would expect higher rates of long COVID as well. And in some of those areas, unfortunately, they may be less prepared because they're not large cities with long COVID clinics, or they may be less well-resourced. And so that will be a challenge as well, getting access to care for people experiencing long COVID who are in an area that they don't have large hospitals or uh, university hospitals with these clinics. Mm. Long COVID appears to be the forgotten aspect of this pandemic. Initially, the medical community did not believe people were suffering from long COVID. As a result, people set up their own online support groups. Some don't want to hear about long COVID or acknowledge it exists as an important byproduct of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yet we see numerous examples of well-known individuals such as Olympic athletes or professional athletes in their peak physical condition who have had their career trajectory altered and in some cases their career ending because of long COVID. Why do you think long COVID is being ignored by so many when there is so much evidence to the contrary showing it is doing damage to so many? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the why is tough to get to, but is unfortunately not too surprising that people have been discounted for illnesses that weren't clearly measurable or didn't clearly show up on some test 
And even among people who have illnesses who show up on some tests, they're discounted for a variety of reasons. Um, so I think medicine had people skeptical as well as outside of medicine. And we see that we still continue to see this people skeptical of, well, is this real? How much of the symptoms are people uh, exaggerating? Are this people who come to our clinic even tell us among friends and family, sometimes they have a tough time with people saying, you know, these other people were sick at the same time and feel fine. Why do you still feel this way? People have that problem with employers sometimes as well as they are feeling these changes in cognition, this exhaustion, pains throughout their body. And because it doesn't manifest in a very easily measurable or tangible thing like a CAT scan result or uh, a test for cancer or something like that, um, it's, I think it's easier for people to be doubtful of it, especially if they're not deep within this work and clearly seeing this is obviously an injury after the virus. This has been described for centuries. Um, we know a fair amount about what, how other viruses have affected people in terms of syndromes. And we're learning a fair amount about the actual changes with long COVID. And I'm hopeful that the recent research, especially this year as research is really ramping up, our understanding of the biology of long COVID is ramping up. There will be clear high impact studies that uh, kind of wipe away any doubt that people had. But as you've seen, and we've seen throughout the pandemic, even very obvious tangible things can be discounted or ignored by people. And that's, I think, part of human psychology and not necessarily unique to any, any virus or any illness. In 2026, uh, the first baby boomer turns 80. Our medical systems are already stretched thin. With an aging population as a certainty in the next few years and the potential additional cost burden on the medical system with long COVID, how do you think we can manage these pressures going forward? So I think um, certainly investment in, in primary care and general medicine care and investment in teams that manage illnesses in ways that center around the patient's needs and bring value to the patients rather than ways that produce revenue through testing or treatments. That, that type of focus, which is kind of value-based healthcare compared to what we call in the US fee-for-service, which is you have something done and the insurance pays for that specific thing to be done having a value-based mindset and having insurance coverage that focuses on patients' outcomes rather than just services is gonna certainly serve patients well. Um, we're hoping, at least from a long COVID perspective, to have investments through federal grants or other programs to support the continued buildup of long COVID clinics because there are already too few, we're already overwhelmed. And uh, if you rely on each COVID clinic to try to support itself, it's gonna be quite challenging. So we're trying to advocate for some organized national program that supports the development and growth of long COVID clinics, both from a clinical and research perspective. Um, but I think caring for an aging population will 
hopefully require a continued shift in the right direction of how we provide medicine, that we focus on prevention of disease, not treatment of illness once it's happened. And we actually truly put our money where our mouth is in that because for the most part, healthcare, um, things that treat more serious diseases, pay more procedures are more desirable financially from the global healthcare perspective than a preventative treatment. And we have to continue to shift to value-based healthcare and preventive healthcare for aging populations. Thank you for that answer. Um, Post-pandemic, let's look at people that have had COVID-19. About 400 million people in the world to date, which is likely to be a, an underestimate, have had COVID-19. So from that figure, around 60 to 120 million people will be expected to develop long COVID. With this figure set to increase as more people become infected, do you believe that long COVID will have a greater economic and societal impact than the pandemic itself? It's hard to do a direct comparison. I think it will have a substantial impact and it could be a very big enduring impact in terms of employment, joblessness, because tons of the patients we see have to leave their jobs because they can't function in the jobs. So I think the workforce issues will continue in part because of long COVID. Um, those buckets of patients I talked about, people recovering versus having continued illness, it's hard to know amongst the, the millions of people having COVID how many people will fall into each bucket. So we're, I'm hopeful with vaccination and with what we're learning about long COVID, we'll be able to help these patients in a way that we weren't able to do at the very beginning when this was first recognized and we knew nothing about it. Um, but I, I think the, the pandemic itself has had catastrophic worldwide financial implications. I think the implications of long COVID will be really on the workforce and on the quality of life and the lives of all these people affected, which may not be easily reflected in a jobs number or an economics number, but will be people living with these chronic illnesses that are, have changed the way they experience or enjoy life and um and that in and of itself is a, a huge deal mm. and i know we've nearly run out of time so this is the very last question i'd like to end on a positive note what have been your most uplifting experiences of this pandemic i think the most uplifting thing from a long covid perspective is just how resilient people are um, that people come to us with these in, intense impairments and changes to how they're feeling and experiencing life, yet they've continued to go. They're raising their kids, they're at home. And even when we don't have a, an easy answer and we listen to them, just by developing a relationship with them and having someone listen, people are so grateful. And that is a very simple thing that you can do. It doesn't take really any specific medical expertise but um, it's something that for patients who are being ignored is often not provided to them. No one is listening. And so I think the simplicity of developing relationships with people by listening and believing their symptoms and by partnering to help them feel better, even if we don't have a simple cure, 
has been an uplifting part of this and seeing the resilience that people have. Thank you so much for such a fantastic interview. It's been very informative and we're so privileged to have an expert such as yourself join us today. Thank you for all that you do. Um, your patients are very lucky to have uh, such a dedicated healthcare professional uh, looking after them. Thank you. Thanks, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to introduce Professor Amitava Banerjee. Professor Banerjee is a professor in clinical data science at University College London and a consultant cardiologist at University College London Hospitals and Bart's Health NHS Trust in the UK. He is also adjunct associate professor in public health at Amrita Institute of Medical Sciences in Kochi, India. Professor Banerjee is the principal investigator of the UK Stimulate ICP project involving the largest clinical study of long COVID to date that will be conducted over two years. Amy, welcome to COVID-19 The Answers. Would you like to tell the audience what led a professor in clinical data science and a consultant cardiologist to study long COVID? Thanks very much for me. Uh, as as you said that question, that uh, says really that a, a, a cardiologist has no business dealing in infectious diseases, and and it speaks to how in healthcare we do tend to work in our specialties and in our silos, uh, and and actually of course whether it's physical and, and mental health, whether it's cardiology and infectious diseases, there are links, uh, and and for me the link was that. Uh, one of my patients in, in my heart failure clinic, that's the part of cardiology that I deal in most, asked me why uh, in, in March 2020, uh, he was being told that he was more at risk of getting severe COVID-19 and um, of, of dying from COVID-19. That was in the chief medical officer's announcement in the UK about particular diseases where you should take extra precautions, think about shielding, staying at home to avoid infection. So that was how I got interested and started uh, doing research in, in COVID. Excellent. So please note um, to the audience that the research papers referred to in this part of the programme will have links provided to them in the show notes. You have, Amy, you have stated in a recent interview with the UK Guardian newspaper that throughout the pandemic, long COVID has been absent from government briefings and media reports. Funding and research have focused on acute effects such as infections, hospitalizations and deaths, but not chronic effects. Why do you think chronic effects of COVID have been excluded? And why is this an important mission? Well, for me, uh, th this is not a new situation in, the, in that we, in emergencies such as the pandemic, we, we focus because of attention span, the media cycle, also because of resources and bandwidth on the uh, acute, which in this case was at various stages in the pandemic, uh, an overflowing of the ITU uh, units in hospital, uh, very high uh, death rates from um, COVID. And so the acute burden was high. It has been a, a really big 
effect for individuals, uh, for their families, for health professionals. But that meant we weren't thinking about the, the longer term consequences, whether it's in terms of uh, what, what's the impact of having a large number of people in the population having an infection, what's the impact on their health in 12 months or more time, uh, and, and what's the impact on the economy. Uh, and, and so I, I think we, we've seen before that chronic conditions tend to be uh, a lower priority. They don't capture people's uh, priorities, whether it's politicians or the general public as much. Uh, in, in this case, it's important because it's what I call the long tail of the pandemic. You, you might think that the biggest burden to individuals and um, to health systems is, is that acute part, but actually, if there is a long-term consequence, which is what long COVID is, then the impact on those people's long-term health, physical and mental, the impact on the economy because they're off work, the impact on their families will far outweigh the acute impact. So this is something that we should all be opening our eyes to. Mm, very much. Modern medicine still seems to focus on the treatment of disease rather than its prevention. How do you think this is fed into the management of the pandemic? Well, as, as we're talking, the UK has lifted its uh, restrictions and any um, COVID legislation today. Uh, and that's prevention in terms of mask wearing, in terms of the possibility of having um, restrictions if, if uh, infection rates rise. And uh, the, the alternative is to allow um, high rates of hospital admission, ITU admission and so on that may occur. Uh, and we've seen this, whether it's in terms of cardiovascular disease, in terms of certain other diseases such as cancers where there are prevention uh, activities that you could be doing, whether it's investing in programs that you know, try to reduce certain behaviours like smoking or reducing alcohol consumption and more exercise versus reducing the levels of certain risk factors such as cholesterol and so on. Or do we invest money in uh, treating uh, the effects of not managing those risk factors such as heart attacks? And in the same way, that's continued in, in the COVID era. The relevance here, I think, as well, is that there are underlying risk factors such as heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, where those people who have poorly managed risk factors do worse in terms of their outcomes in uh, COVID as well. So prevention definitely is, is better than cure, it's better than treatment in this case. Mm, thank you. Um, how do you think we can lead the medical profession towards a disease pre uh, prevention approach? The government seems doesn't seem to be going along that route, but how do you think we can lead the medical profession that way? Well, I, I think we, we need to lead the medical profession, but we also need to lead the population, the, the, uh, the, the patients, because it's better to... to um, you change hearts and minds of patients rather than change the hearts and minds of health professionals. And I, I think the problem for policymakers is that they think in 
short-term cycles, five five years of, of their elected period. They're not really thinking of 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line. And the fact of the matter is that if you invest, and I'm talking about not just money, if you invest your, your time, your energy in prevention, uh, then that will pay off in years in in decades not just in you know the next two or three years uh, and you know that has an impact on on both your physical and mental health it also means that hopefully you avoid having to use healthcare as much nobody in my experience wants to be on more pills mm. wants to be on more tablets wants to be having more treatment so, so in order to get to that position where we're encouraging prevention, I think we need to be changing the the dialogue so that people see that there, there is over the longer term a benefit to it. Yeah, I think you brought up some incredibly good points there. I've always been frustrated as a healthcare professional um, um, about the fact that we don't really plan for health. I mean, I mostly grew up in the UK. We don't plan for health for a generation. We do need to plan over 30 years rather than the short political four to five year cycles that we do. So it would be really good if there could be some form of reform to to to, to do that, really. Um, looking at, moving on, so... Um, you have been involved in a large study that is focused on researching long COVID. Can you tell the audience what Stimulate ICP is and how it came to be set up and what are its goals and objectives? Stimulate ICP is a two-year study funded by the UK's National Institute for Health Research in a specific funding call for long COVID research. It came about actually because uh, we we um, were listening to patients and health professionals, and I myself am both uh, a practicing doctor as well as a researcher. And in my case, I was seeing people with cardiac uh, complications in the long term from um, from initial COVID infection, sometimes months later, and. So we decided that we need to, as my um, colleague and co-lead of this study, Dr. Melissa Heitman says, we have to build the, the plane while we're flying it. We have to do the research while we're seeing so many people with uh, COVID and long COVID. The best way to avoid long COVID is to avoid getting infected in the first place we should not have been in this situation. And, and if you look at the countries where there is a large burden of long COVID, it's the countries where we've had unmitigated um, infection. Uh, that's the US, that's, that's the UK, and a few other countries around the world, that they have the worst burdens of long COVID. And that's, that's the case here. So we, we have to, at scale, both map out the trajectory of disease. By that, I mean who recovers, how quickly do they recover, who needs more help to recover, who's at risk of having prolonged symptoms and um, organ impairment in the first place. Are the clinics that we've set up uh, functioning in the most effective way? 
But the main part of our study is a trial where we're recruiting 4,500 people with long COVID who have been referred to the clinics in the UK, of which there are 90 now. We're focusing on six centres initially. That's Hull, Liverpool, Derby, Leicester, uh, Exeter and London. Um, so we've got a, a wide geographic spread, but also differences in the way the health system is set up or the clinic is set up there. Some of those are in primary care. Some of those are in hospitals. Some of them are virtual. Some of them are face to face so that we, we come up with a solution that's scalable because the Office for National Statistics has um, estimated there's 1.3 million people with long COVID today in the UK. That's as many as with any God-fearing long-term condition. Uh, so we need a quick solution uh, and quick um, trials of treatment so that we can offer things that are evidence-based. So in our trial, we're looking at uh, investigations, drugs, and also um, a digital enhanced rehabilitation platform as well. But we are one of several studies that's been funded. You know, our study is not going to have anywhere near all the answers. I'm glad that we're able to work in this space and, and hope to provide answers to patients. Um, but, but um, you know, we, we, we can't do all of it in one study. Another area that we're looking at as well is the inequalities in uh access to services, whether that's by geography or ethnicity or age or gender. Uh, and also beyond the pandemic, given the scale of this challenge to our health system, we're hoping that by comparing with other long-term conditions from depression to heart failure, we can think about how we can better treat chronic conditions at scale. You brought up so many good points um, uh, uh, in in the, in the statement that you just made. Um, I th I think I'm, I'm being presumption presumptuous. It, it warrants a follow up interview to see your findings on that very interesting research. Um, so looking at a great paper you had published in the British Medical Journal or BMJ in March 2021 titled Post-COVID Syndrome in Individuals Admitted to Hospital with COVID-19 Retrospective Cohort Study. This looked at 47,780 individuals, 55% of them men with a mean age of 65 years. In this paper, most of the study participants had pre-existing illnesses such as heart disease, diabetes. I would like to focus on the following questions. There is a statement in your paper that says, most studies so far have focused on symptoms associated with post-COVID syndrome rather than organ dysfunction. Why do you think that is? And why is it important to focus on organ dysfunction? I think, uh the, the reason that they're focused on symptoms was because that's the easiest thing to do to start with. So that's the starting point. And we've got to remember that we're, even though it seems to people who have um, suffered with long COVID, I've got family members and friends and colleagues who are in that um, bracket, but still the, the rate of discovery uh, the speed with which we're finding things out is quicker than usual. So the reason that they were looking at symptoms first is because 
the easiest type of research is a survey where you ask people what they've um, been suffering with. And then after that, the next step is to organise for scans or blood investigations or other ways of looking at the function of the organs. And so that needs a, a more detailed research study to be set up. And you need a, a, a large sample size in the population to be able to make conclusions about that. So in our study, we used data from the Office for National Statistics. We are, um, I've worked with colleagues there throughout the pandemic and been able to use the, the data riches, if you like, of the UK to try and get um, answers quickly. And in, in this case, because we have good coding in electronic health records, we could look at uh, the impact on um, acute or chronic uh, organ problems following uh, COVID in, um, infection. You showed that there were increased rates of multi-organ dysfunction of individuals that had contracted COVID-19 following discharge. In your opinion, what is going on in the body to cause multi-organ dysfunction? And what does this mean? Yeah, this, this is a, a very tricky question, which we don't have the answer for yet. There are many uh, theories, uh, hypotheses of what the underlying um, so-called pathology might be, what, what's, what's the mechanism. It's likely that given the variety of symptoms and the clusters of symptoms that people have, uh, and the different uh, patterns of organ impairment that we're not looking at just one disease. It's likely that this is a so-called syndrome where people have different subtypes, uh, but, but even that we can't define well yet. That's why our study is funded to try and get at that. You know, there are some people who complain more of uh, cardiopulmonary, so, so that's, that means heart and lungs, so they're complaining more of breathlessness, chest pain, those kinds of symptoms. There are people who have more cognitive or neurological symptoms, such as brain fog, which is the, the term in common parlance to describe the lack of concentration, the fuzziness in the head that people have been describing. Others are describing more systemic symptoms like fever, just general um, malaise, feeling unwell, tiredness and so on. So we need to know much more about those particular um, symptoms and symptom groups uh, because they're likely to be related to um, some form of organ impairment. Uh, there's another study that I've been involved in called the cover scan study where we did um, multi-organ MRI scans in people to look at different organs and there's a suggestion there that at six months and now 12 months, there, there are a subset of people who have persistent organ damage. And we need to study that more. We need to know whether there's an impact of uh, the findings on the scan. Uh, the reason it's important is because if it wasn't there before people got COVID, then that's another reason to first of all influence policymakers that getting COVID, living with COVID, as as the prime minister says, is not a benign um, undertaking. Uh, and if if you know whether it's heart or liver or lungs or kidneys, 
if there's some impact of that, then people should be aware of that. Yeah, very, you've almost sort of pipped some of the questions I'm going to ask you. But um, So um, you and your team, which I think this is the paper you just mentioned, um, wrote a second paper, once again published in the BMJ in March 2021, which I thought was leading edge at the time. It's entitled Multi-Organ Impairment in Low-Risk Individuals with Post-COVID-19 Syndrome, a Prospective Community-Based Study. Your team's report in this paper, you utilised a small study group of just over 200 mostly previously healthy white women and showed that 25% of this group had significant heart damage after COVID-19, which was prescient at the time. New research released by a team in the US last week seemed to indicate that even a mild case of COVID-19 can increase the risk of cardiovascular or heart problems one year after diagnosis. This US study had a much larger sample size over a longer period of time, looking at over 150,000 mostly white males. As a cardiologist, what do you think is the international significance of these two findings for all women and men? Have there been any studies on healthy young people of colour who are infected with SARS-CoV-2? And would you anticipate the results being different? So, so I, I think the reason, first of all, why we've got studies in the US and the UK is what I alluded to before, is that both of these countries have had uh, an ideology and an approach since the beginning that infection suppression, uh, by that I mean keeping the infection rate down over time, is not something that we wanted to pursue. As a result, those two countries will, by definition, have longer term um, consequences, more long COVID in this case. Uh, you don't find this being such a problem in New Zealand or Taiwan or Japan, um, but that's because of infection rate. I don't think that uh, I, I anticipate differences by ethnicity other than, if anything, uh, I would expect more uh, impact in people of uh, colour or people of ethnic minority because what we've seen with the acute effects is that people were more likely to be admitted to hospital, more likely to be admitted to intensive care, more likely to be at risk of dying if they were of, for example, South, uh, South Asian or, or um, Black descent. And the reasons for that are many. There are, it's, it's, it's least likely to do with a biologic cause or a genetic cause. It's much more likely to do with uh, exposure to the virus. So, so much higher proportions of people from ethnic minorities have been in frontline roles during the pandemic, from porters, cleaners, nurses, healthcare assistants, taxi drivers, so on. There's um, studies that I've been involved in with the Office of National Statistics around overcrowding in housing and so on. So it's likely that uh, people from these populations may have in, had increased exposure to viral load. Um, and so we, we haven't seen it yet, but I would expect there to be a large effect in um, ethnic minority populations 
one of the things we're looking at in our study is at the referral rates to long COVID clinics around the UK, where what I said is what I'd expect, but we haven't seen those people um, coming forward yet. Is it that there genuinely is less long COVID or is it because they're not being reached by the services that are being offered? Those are two different issues which need different solutions. So we're, we're looking at that in our study and stimulate ICP. And thank you so much for re-emphasising the link between allowing unfettered transmission of the virus through the population and the risks of long COVID and multi-organ damage. I think that so much needs to be highlighted, um, particularly in light of uh, Boris Johnson's announcements of releasing all all COVID public health measures. Um, So um, your study looked at people with an average age of 45 years that had suffered from COVID-19 pre-vaccination. In just under five months after having COVID-19, you discovered that over 70% of these people had impairment in one or more organs. You were looking at the heart, lungs, kidneys, liver, spleen and pancreas. This was in a group relatively young and fit with a limited history um, on the whole of past illness. This study was done in the UK between the 1st of April and the 14th of September 2020, pre-vaccination. Do you expect the figures for organ damage to be lower post-vaccination? It's a great question. I I, I think that we expect yes. Uh, There's no trials of this, but there's what we call observational data. So looking at uh, large data sets like from the Office for National Statistics to compare vaccinated with unvaccinated. And it appears that people who've been vaccinated and had all of their doses seem to have lower rates or less severe long COVID, um, which is good news, of course. Um, there's um, been anecdotal reports of some people with long COVID after their vaccination, feeling like their symptoms transiently got worse. But for the most part, people seem to report that it's got better or stayed the same. And vaccination, uh, as it's been trialled, the evidence that we have is to reduce the risk of a severe, acute uh, bout of COVID-19. You know, it's reduced risk of hospital admission and so on. Um, so, so to answer your question, yes, I would expect that. But even with a milder variant such as um, Omicron, where we know that the severity has been less in terms of hospital admission and so on, the high rates of infection may lead to still many thousands of people with long COVID um, uh, developing regardless so we, we have to we have to monitor the situation I, I mean it would be um it would be obviously a huge breakthrough and tremendous to to say that vaccination you know minimizes or you know greatly reduces long covid but um without monitoring it in 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 the future we can't say that for certain and of course we need to know what the next variant of concern is and what the impact of that is. 
Another important finding from this research was that COVID-19 is affecting other pre-existing illnesses, such as diabetes or heart disease. I assume the virus is attacking the body, exacerbating these illnesses. Understandably, people were also hesitant to go to the doctor during peak lockdown pandemic times, which would compound the problem even more, ultimately resulting in worse outcomes and potentially dying. This is a massive new health burden on top of an already stretched system that will affect healthcare organisations globally. How do you think this will impact healthcare systems in developed countries? And how will this impact the less developed countries with very little healthcare infrastructure? The easy answer for me is hugely. I, I, I think that uh, there's been this false rhetoric that backlogs in the UK for non-COVID care, such as cancer and cardiovascular disease, have been because of uh, lockdown or restrictions. But actually, um, we've as well as the impact of covid which you just highlighted there which can lead to chronic conditions we've filled so much of the the focus of the health system on the acute effects of covid that we're not able to deal with pre-existing conditions as much as we would like and we've got that compounded by potentially new disease new diabetes new kidney disease new heart disease so we have to be very careful as individuals and as populations and as a, a health system that we don't create a stick to beat our own backs uh, because there are finite um, resources. We, we've got finite number of health professionals, finite number of hospital beds, finite numbers of clinic appointments. And we, we need people to be healthy in order to live fulfilling lives, but also to be able to um, do the jobs that keep our economies working. And so, you know, whether it's long COVID because of the symptoms, long COVID because of the new diabetes, there are people who are off sick in different sectors because of those things. Um, so much more monitoring and planning is required. But avoiding the infection in the first place is still the best way, still the only way that's proven to avoid long COVID. Thank you. We just talked about um, what is described in the medical community as a syndemic. Can you please share with the audience your definition of syndemic, including the socioeconomic impacts as it relates to this coronavirus? I believe the term syndemic was coined in the... Um, 90s actually but i only came across it in relation to coronavirus syndemic is is the term used to describe that an infectious disease isn't just caused by infectious agents such as in this case coronavirus it's also capitalizing on the so-called social determinants of health poverty lack of education, lack of health literacy, digital divides, uh, geographic inequality. It's also um, the interaction with underlying conditions, cardiovascular disease, which is you know, my specialty, wearing my clinical hat, 
diabetes, um, people who are on immunosuppressive medication for their underlying conditions such as cancer. All of these have not only been linked to the acute risk of severe COVID, but may also have an impact on the longer term. Uh, so all of that um, interplay and, and complex interaction of non-communicable disease, the risk factors, and with the infectious disease is what people call the syndemic. Mm, thank you. In view of your findings, should we be testing and assessing every working age young person, including children, for post-COVID syndrome if they have been infected with SARS-CoV-2, i.e. have a positive COVID test, even if they don't have symptoms of long COVID? I don't think we have evidence to do, for example, detailed scans or a whole battery of blood tests in everybody. Firstly, uh, that would lead to a, a lot of um, um, burden on doing the test, but also in, in our studies, we found that most people thankfully don't have um, abnormalities, but um, in, definitely in people with symptoms, I think we have to look to rule out other underlying conditions and then look to see if there's any progression of uh, disease. And, then in, in people who are maybe more vulnerable, have had, uh, say, hospitalised COVID and been in, admitted, they probably need to be followed up um, in the first instance. But in, in practical terms, I don't think even a health system like ours, that with the NHS, has the capacity to do what you're proposing in everybody. After all um, this kind of doom and gloom with long COVID, do you believe there could be a cure for long COVID? And how does this tie in with the trial that you're about to start looking for possible drug treatments for long COVID? So I don't think, first of all, this is doom and gloom. I think it is that we know we know what we can do and what we could do. And there, there are active decisions being made not to do it. And so, you know, each of us has, uh, you, you know, the the option even now to try and reduce infection risk. Um, and, you know, when you, when you compare with other countries, we do see that. Um, yes, I do, to answer your question, believe that we're moving closer every day to understanding the mechanism, whether it's in terms of the immune uh, pathways, whether it's, uh, to do with inflammation uh, and, and whether it's um, to do with changes in the body, such as uh, microclots. Now, in our study, we one of the parts is this trial that I mentioned. We're testing three drugs to start with, but it's a platform trial where, like the so-called recovery trial, other drugs can be added as, as hypotheses emerge. But one of the drugs that we're testing is colchicine, which is an anti-inflammatory. Another drug is rivaroxaban, which is anti-clotting. So if there are microclots, then we'd hope that that improves people's symptoms. And finally, a combination of antihistamines, famotidine and loratadine, because some people have described a so-called mast cell activation response uh, and and 
this this antihistamine combination would reduce that. And if these drugs work, then that tells us something about the the pathways. If it doesn't work, then you can cross that box off and we can keep looking. But the scale of the effort, you know, in in countries around the world um, that's now funded um, to do this research means that I think we will, um, you know, at the very least get better at treating it, if not um, finding cures for it. Thank you. And just to enlighten the audience, a mast cell is a type of white cell um, involved in kind of your allergic or hypersensitivity response in the body. Um, So um, the sheer numbers of um, people affected and and potentially affected by long COVID is mind blowing. What steps are being taken to facilitate a community based approach to the care of for long COVID sufferers as it relates to training, education and funding for community medicine and caregivers? That's a wonderful point for me. so, So I'm not sure I have all the answers in our study. We set out at the at the outset to um, do what's called integrated care. So you don't want a cardiologist sitting in his box and the dermatologist or the gastroenterologist sitting in his or her box. We want the primary care and secondary care and the rehabilitation um, experts to be in a pathway with the patient in the middle where we're all joined up. So. That actually uh, is is happening uh, already in the case of long COVID, um, and we're testing the effect of doing it even more integrated by um, the the way we're doing investigations. I think also, given the resource implications that you said, we have to have um, online adjuncts. So in our case, we're using a digital um, rehabilitation platform. Because if each person was to have, you know, regular, let's say, monthly physiotherapy appointments face to face, we haven't got that many physiotherapists, even with our current population of long COVID, to to provide that service in the NHS or even in in private healthcare. Uh, so, so we have to find new ways of doing that, and and then there's something about the prevention that we're talking about, um, trying to treat and prevent underlying conditions, that's community-based, looking after your physical mental health in the community. Some of those things are as relevant to long COVID as any other chronic condition. Thank you. We've run out of time, unfortunately. Um, I could go on for another hour interviewing you. And I really hope um, that we can revisit um, this interview because you're doing some fascinating research that I think um, needs to be um, promoted. Your contributions are wonderful. Um, As I say to a lot of the clinicians I'm interviewing, thank you for everything that you do and for your dedication and focus to the sufferers of long COVID. Um, um, This was a really enjoyable and very informative interview, Amy. Thank you very much for me. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week as we talk about COVID vaccination with Dr. Craig Laferriere and children's COVID vaccination in a bonus episode with Professor Melissa Stockwell. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of COVID-19 The Answers. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, 
rate and review and do visit our website kajalamedical.com forward slash COVID-19 The Answers.